0: Uh, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20 to be specific, Sunday morning studying the book of Acts together and we come to chapter 20 now. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles and wave to them, they'll put one in your hand, it'll be marked to our passage and if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from us to you today and make a friend of that Bible And what a miracle it will produce within your life as it has in mine. Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And after the uproar had ceased, that is the great riot that Demetrius produced in Ephesus, Paul called the disciples to himself and embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him... As he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby. And uh, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia, these men going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, all ready to depart on the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. As Paul continued speaking, and so he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. It's a very appropriate passage to be in this morning <laughs> in light of the fact that most of us lost an hour of sleep last night. So here's the test. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourself, for this, his life is in him. And now when he had come up had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long time. Even until daybreak, Paul departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this book of Acts. Thank you for all of the nuggets and all of the instruction that is found in it. The deep things that are there, Lord, the things that are more on the surface, but are there because you know we need to be constantly reminded of them. We thank you for the miracle that is the Bible, and we thank you for these verses we're going to study this morning and what you're going to plant in our spirit and our hearts and minds as a result. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in our lives today. Open your word up to us, we pray. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen please be seated. These 12 verses as we come to Acts chapter 20 represent a a section of Scripture that I would be kind of prone for who I am as a Bible teacher to just simply skip. Now, how's that for an introduction for a Bible study? But I I tend to go through the book of Acts, and I want to go from, you know, the mountaintop experience to the mountaintop experience, the the big event to the next big event. And the big event that we've just dealt with in the book of Acts is the riot that was produced by Demetrius the silversmith in the book of Ephesus and a testimony to the effectiveness of the Apostle Paul's ministry and of the gospel in Ephesus. The next great event that's going to happen in the progression is Paul's instruction of the Ephesian elders in the city of Miletus and, but as you look at a passage like this, and and um, there's a reason for it to be, you know, here in the book, and in, and in fact, uh, the it's kind of a transitional section of scripture. It helps tie up some loose ends related to what Paul is coming out of, and then it sets the table for what happens next in. In the book, and we won't fully understand what we've just come out of or where we're headed without spending a little bit of time, more than a sentence or two, of encapsulating it, in order to get our bearings. It's a pivotal point in the Apostle Paul's uh, ministry, and really any place in the Bible that we're in the Bible period, but anywhere we're studying the life and the activity of Paul, surely uh, that section of Scripture has uh, much to. Uh, say uh, to us the foundation for all that we uh, read of these 12 verses in chapter 20 is found in two verses in chapter 19 uh, verses 21 and 22 you might turn back uh, a page to read those and they're kind of tucked in the passage between uh, the burning of uh, the magic scrolls in Ephesus and then uh, Demetrius's uh, riot where we read, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the the Spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so he went into Macedonia, sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time." Actually, these two verses not only set the tone uh, for uh, the first 12 verses of chapter 20, but really for the rest of the book. Paul lays out a plan that he has now for his life. And after three years of being there in Ephesus in ministry, he has a sense that his ministry is over there. Uh, the city has been reached with the gospel, completely evangelized. The surrounding region has been uh, evangelized. The church is healthy, is strong. There's solid leadership in the church. It doesn't really need him uh, to be there. It would be a luxury for them to have him, Paul, there, but it doesn't really need him. uh, to continue with the work that God had raised the church up uh, to do. And so Paul uh, here is sensing that it's it's time to move on and do in a new city what he had done so effectively in Ephesus. Remember, Paul is a church planter. He is an apostle. Uh, He is a missionary. He is a pastor all at the same time. But he isn't the kind of pastor that goes into a city and then stays there for decades. He is on the move establishing churches. His intention, we're told, was to travel uh, to Jerusalem in order to be there to celebrate uh, the uh, feast of Passover. And we know from here, and we know from other passages in the New Testament, that. He wanted to go to Jerusalem not only to celebrate the Feast of Passover there, but also to deliver a financial gift to the Jewish Christians that were there who were enduring economic hardship at the time. And Paul wanted to bring a financial gift from the Gentile churches in what we know as Turkey today and Greece today to deliver them to the J- Jewish church, uh, so to speak, in uh, Jerusalem and to bless them. Not only bless them in providing some margins in their life for their physical needs, but to bless their heart with an understanding of how. Big the church is, how God is saving the Gentiles, and uh, and a mark of that salvation and the change in their lives being demonstrated, and being willing to be concerned about another part of the body of Christ and supporting it financially, and uh, even these these uh, Jewish Christians there uh, in in Jerusalem. Paul plan on passing through Macedonia and uh, Achaia. though Both of those are regions of what we know today as Greece. It might not be a bad idea if you have maps at the back of your Bible to look at the one that gives you Paul's third missionary journey and kind of see with your eyes what uh, we're talking about here, if, if you've, you've got that. But we know that, uh, that he had this plan to pass through Macedonia and Achaia there in Greece on his way to Jerusalem, and he was going to pass through various cities uh, before going to Jerusalem with the intent of revisiting them, strengthening them, encouraging the churches, making sure that they're uh, doing okay. And the churches that were on his agenda were churches like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. He also wanted to go to these cities because he wanted to Um, give them a challenge and also give them an opportunity as a church to be a part of donating to this gift that was going to go uh, to uh, Jerusalem. And so to let them know that uh, that this was something that they could be a part of. But his ultimate goal uh, was then to travel to the city of Rome uh, to help strengthen and encourage the church there as well. There already was a Christian church or presence in Rome. Aquila and Priscilla came from Rome. They were persecuted out of the city of Rome. So Christians were there, and his desire was to go to the great capital of the Roman Empire and impact it. Uh, for the kingdom of God uh, as well. And he understood all of this to be the prompting of the Holy Spirit uh, in his life. And he had determined to leave Ephesus and embark upon his plan even before Demetrius Created the riot that we looked at last week, and that's why verses uh, 20 and 21 are wedged in there prior uh, uh, to the event. So Paul has these plans, and then he formally launches his uh, his plan by sending uh, Timothy to Macedonia. And then ultimately, as we learn elsewhere in the New Testament, that He sent Paul, uh, Timothy then on to Corinth. He also sent Titus uh, at this time to Corinth as well. 2 uh, Corinthians uh, chapters 1 through 7 is a section in the Bible where Paul discussed a lot of these events that were occurring here at the same time. He also uh, gives us great light into this chapter in his life in the book of Romans. It is a very, very busy time. In his life, and it is a time in which if you were to look at the book of Acts and see his season there in Ephesus and so forth, it would look like he's going from mountaintop to mountaintop. Everything is coming up roses. He doesn't have a problem in the world, and yet this season in his life is filled with a great hardship and a tremendous heartbreak for him in ministry. After calling these uh, Christians together, chapter 20, verse 1, uh, together in Ephesus, Paul then embraces them. It was a time for a group hug, a time to leave. He's been with them for three years. Nobody understands the Apostle Paul if we only know him as a great theologian. He loved people. He loved having people around him. He loved relationships. And so he then leaves them, Uh, at this point in time, and, and then headed toward Macedonia, northern Greece, and he traveled through Asia Minor in order to get there. Asia Minor in the Bible is not the Orient on our maps. Asia Minor was a Uh, province within the Roman Empire as a part of what we know as Turkey uh, today. We also know from 2 Corinthians that Paul uh, came to Troas at that time, and in coming to Troas, he found an open door to preach there. He spoke to the church at Corinth and said, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. But In coming to Troas, you would think, wow, he would be all excited about the ministry, but he isn't. He doesn't find Titus there, and he had sent Titus to uh, Corinth with the idea that he and Titus would uh, reunite in Uh, in uh, in Troas. He comes to Troas. Titus isn't there. And so, he continues now uh, to move across uh, the water uh, from Turkey into uh, northern Greece, into Macedonia in the search for Titus. And, uh, And so, uh, he he's on the search here uh, in order to catch up with him and get some news from Titus. The backstory uh, of all of this, and it's important to understand the backstory, was the church at Corinth's treatment of the Apostle Paul during the three years that the Apostle Paul was ministering in the city of Ephesus. The church at Corinth, a church that he had invested in a year and a half of his life in in establishing and, uh, and that he had planted in his second missionary journey, during this time it is proving to be a, a, a great concern, a constant concern to Paul and a great heartache to him. While he was in the city of Ephesus for those three years, at some point leaders came from the church at Corinth concerned about the very future of the church In Corinth. And they brought, they came to Paul, traveled to him in order to discuss face to face the problems that the church found themselves in the middle of and to ask Paul for guidance for how to address them. There was sexual immorality that was openly being practiced within. The church. There were divisions, there were factions, false teachers were becoming more and more powerful uh, within the church. And then there was just kind of the general carnality and immaturity of the church as a whole. And so Paul wrote what we refer to as 1 Corinthians in order to address those problems. But the problems persisted there, and it forced Paul then to personally travel during his three years in Ephesus, from Ephesus to Corinth in order to uh, address them uh, personally. And this constituted his second visit uh, to them. We don't know much about it except that it was a very, very painful visit for Paul. Paul then returns to Ephesus from Corinth, and he wrote another letter to Corinth. That letter is lost. We do not possess it Today, But apparently, it was a scathing letter of correction uh, to them. I mean, he really, uh, really let them have it, not in a carnal way, but in a, a very, very spiritual way. But it was strongly exhortive and strongly corrective. It was so much so that when it left his hand and Paul sent it to Corinth, he immediately regretted writing it he began to have second doubts about how strong the letter was and how the letter would be received, not by a group of spiritual people within that church, but in the uh, general carnality of the church at uh, Corinth. And so he agonized over it. It was a very, very hard letter to write because he didn't know how they would respond to it. Would they humble themselves to the correction or uh, would they, uh, you know, want nothing to do with Paul in an even uh, greater measure? There was a faction within the church at Corinth that held the Apostle Paul in very light esteem. In fact, they were very interested in uh, removing his any kind of influence of his within the church altogether. Again, very power-hungry, carnal leaders that were in the church trying to expand uh, their Uh, influence. And if they were able to win the day there in Corinth at this particular point in time, uh, then they would be able to uh, detract Paul in the eyes of the church as kind of the founder of of the church, lead them into their bogus doctrines and so forth, and then uh, probably the Church of Corinth would have fallen into apostasy and uh, and or disintegrated and never been uh, heard of positively after that. And so, uh, the the very future of the uh, this church that he loved at Corinth, that spent a year and a half of his life in establishing, it was in very very. Real doubt. Titus had been sent by Paul to deliver this scathing letter uh, to them, and then he was instructed by Paul to deliver the letter, see how they respond to it, and then meet me in Troas, so I can know, get my bearings here in terms of you know how they view me. Because Paul, when he left Ephesus, his intention was ultimately to make his way. Uh, to Corinth, but before he gets to Corinth uh, on making his way then uh, ultimately to Jerusalem and so forth, but before he gets to Corinth, he wants to know what are they thinking? What's the impact this letter has had uh, upon them? Are they going to welcome him or are they going to reject him? Now, apparently, again, Paul prearranged with uh, Titus to meet him in Troas with the report. Paul now travels to Troas and Titus can't be found. And so in Paul's mind, this can't be good news. This is a something horrible is broken out in Corinth. It wasn't a, a happy ending here. And and when Titus wasn't there to meet him in Troas, all of the uncertainty of the Corinthian situation weighed upon Paul so much that he departed from Troas even though he had a wide open door of ministry there. His heart was very concerned about the future of the church in Corinth. And so he then traveled from uh, Troas in Turkey. He crosses over uh, into Greece and he begins to make his way toward Corinth to kind of pick up uh, uh, Titus somewhere along the way and uh, and and then learn about Titus's report, they do end up linking up and coming together and communicating, most likely in the city of Philippi. And Titus reported to Paul that the church had embraced his correction, that they hadn't been put off by it at all. And not only had they embraced all of his correction, but they then expressed their Uh, appreciation uh, toward Paul. They expressed their uh, heart toward Paul and affection toward uh, Paul and also further told uh, Titus, we will be happy to be a part of that offering that you're putting together and and is so important to Paul and taking to the Jerusalem saints. Now, this was a massive, relief to the Apostle Paul. When you read through the New Testament uh, passages that deal with this, this was an enormous weight uh, upon him. The news uh, just sent his spirit uh, soaring, and and the news blessed him so much that while he was still there in Macedonia, the area of Philippi, he immediately wrote what we know to be 2 Corinthians in our Bible, to the church, expressing his relief to them that they received his correction uh, uh, pr- uh, properly, and uh, and 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 that uh, and for the, their expressed affection toward him, and then Paul sent the letter uh, to Corinth in the hand of Titus ahead of his uh, soon arrival there to spend the winter there, and and then. Paul did ultimately, and the idea was that they would. this letter would come to them, they would find out what Paul's heart was toward them as well, and Paul did say, you know, regarding the offering, take care of that before I come so that I don't have to take care of it when I get there. And this is the three-month visit as Paul now comes to Corinth and winters there that's referred to in verses uh, 2 and 3, and uh, with the encouragement that, uh, again, that the, the offering was going to be taken care of. During Paul's three-month stay in Corinth that winter, he wrote this, uh, his great treatise on salvation by faith, uh, The Book of Romans. And so what all of this tells us, it can be a little bit tedious unless you like history a little bit, but it puts uh, some pieces together for us in terms of New Testament uh, 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 pieces and understanding the whole flow uh, of what is going on. But it really helps us to see how much was going on behind the scene in the Apostle Paul's life. Again, there would be the tendency to think about his entire three-year visit in Ephesus as being. Well, he had a little bit of conflict after three months in uh, the synagogue, was forced to go and, and start a little school in, a, in another place uh, to, to, with Tertullius renting it out uh, to him there. And um, and then he got, you know, things got a little rough toward the end, you know, when Demetrius created the riot. But otherwise, it was just basically, you know, a bed of roses for the Apostle Paul uh, in Ephesus. But it wasn't. So much was going on in the ministry, uh, behind the scenes in Ephesus, and giving us what I think is great uh, insight into what he declared of his life and ministry when he writes to the church at Corinth in his second letter, and he talks about all of the hardship he had gone through in his ministry, talks about uh, being shipwrecked, day and a night in the deep, talks about uh, being scourged, 39 stripes, Uh, um, being beaten by rods three times, and he goes through this long list of hardships that uh, he had gone through. And then there's this curious kind of final line that he closes that section uh, with that we wouldn't understand otherwise except for passages like this. And he says, "'Besides all the other things, what comes upon me daily my deep concern for all the churches.'" This period in Paul's life was a very difficult season for him. And it provides us with the background behind two of the most beloved books in the New Testament that were written during this time, 2 Corinthians and Paul's uh, letter to the Romans. Now, In verse 3, Paul's got these plans to go uh, to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome, and his plan ultimately gets interrupted by a plot So after wintering in Corinth, Corinth was a a place where you could catch a ship to just about anywhere in the world. He intended then to take a very rapid uh, sea uh, trip across the Mediterranean, uh, then to Antioch in Syria, which was his sending church, and then to go overland then to the city of uh, Jerusalem where he hoped to then enjoy the Passover uh, celebration and then deliver this monetary Gift to the Jewish Christians there. That was Paul's plan, and it was a beautiful plan. You put yourself in Paul's shoes, it was just absolutely perfection. I'm in Corinth, I just got to catch a boat that is going to take me to Antioch in Syria, get off the boat there, and then make our way to Jerusalem, and then to bless them and surprise them with this unexpected gift in one of the greatest holy days in the Jewish religious calendar. I mean, as Paul is talking about it, and you see his emotion related to it in his epistles, I mean, he can almost uh, taste this event uh, as he he writes about it. He's so excited. And then a, a serious complication arose before boarding the ship, and the ship is probably going to be filled with A lot of other Jews from the area of Greece who were also looking to catch a fast ship from Greece and then to Israel to then make their way to Jerusalem to keep that same uh, feast. These people are piling onto the boat or getting ready to depart on the boat. And a lot of these religious Jews are people who had been persecuting Paul in Greece from the north to the south. And plotting his death and trying to kill him, and then now they run into him once again, boarding the same boat and so there was some kind of a plot that that by against Paul, by the Jews, Paul became aware. Uh, of the plot. It isn't unlikely that the plan was to everybody get on the ship, wait for the right moment, and then kill Paul, throw his body overboard, and he'd never be heard from uh, again. And so when Paul finds out about this, he abandons the ship plan, uh, the sea plan, and he's forced to then, in abandoning that plan, to travel uh, from uh, Greece to Syria in, in Israel, no longer by boat, but instead to go overland, to make his way north through Greece and then east across Turkey. So the Passover plan, the Passover surprise that he had set his heart on, all of that has gone up in smoke. Now in verse 6, um, uh, there Uh, Paul is traveling with a group, and their names are listed there in verse uh, 4. Paul is traveling with Silas as well, and we see the personal pronoun, we, reappear here, which indicates that Dr. Luke has rejoined them uh, on uh, the missionary journey. And uh, this first-person narration, the last time that it occurred was back in Paul's Philippian ministry in chapter 16, and and all of a sudden in the book, in the, in the account of Acts, it ceases being we. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. It goes from we uh, that, that leaves. Apparently, Luke stayed in Philippi and continued to minister during these years, and Paul picks him up now in Philippi, and Luke rejoins him. Uh, It wasn't a bad idea for Paul, when you know something about his story, uh, to have a doctor around. The number of beatings he had taken, the number of scourgings that he had uh, taken, stoned uh, to death, there in Lystra, and on and on, he had some kind of uh, a, a disease that he couldn't shake. It was his thorn in the flesh that affected his eyes in some way, a chronic disease that he had, and, uh, and he's grappling with all of this on top of everything else, and it would be good to have a physician who loves you, uh, like Luke loved Paul, uh, to come along now and uh, travel uh, with him. And so uh, the the bulk of the group that's listed there in verse 4, they continue on to Troas in modern-day Western Turkey, Uh, and then Paul and Silas and Dr. Luke met them five days later, and all of this sets the stage for a very, very eventful uh, Sunday that occurred there. I think there's an important application that comes from this uh, part of the narrative, and it has to do with plans and planning and when our plans are uh, disappointed. It is, uh, it is fun to dream. It is fun to plan. It is fun to set our hearts upon our dreams and upon our plans and be excited about those things. There's nothing uh, wrong with that. And it's never fun when you have a great goal or a great plan or a great dream, and then somehow it gets dashed to pieces uh, by circumstances that are completely out of your control, as happens to Paul right here in this uh, situation. Again, his plan had the appearance of perfection. Just got to catch this boat. I just got to make that plane flight. I got to get there. We're going to land in Syria. We're going to make our way into Israel. Can you, I can just see their eyes when we get there. We walk through the door unannounced and then give them the gift this is going to really be something, and then the plan doesn't come together. The Bible teaches that as God's people, we are absolutely free to plan, and in fact, we're encouraged to plan. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5 is an example of this kind of instruction. Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity. There's nothing wrong with planning, it's encouraged. But our plans are never ever to be so rigid or so unbending that we don't leave room for even God to change them if He chooses to. And so every decision that we make in our lives as Christians, it's supposed to be God willing. In other words, this is the plan unless God changes it. And by the way, he has the freedom to do that. That would be our thought. James writes very specifically on this in his epistle. And he said, come now, you who say tomorrow, uh, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit whereas you don't even know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life it is a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away instead you ought to say if the lord wills we shall live and do this or that but now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil if i have a plan in my life and i've had such plans in my life where and I am so desperate, so determined to accomplish that plan that I'm going to do it if it's the death of me. I'm going to do it if it's hell or high water. I'm going to use every resource I have. I'm going to pull in every favor that I need to pull in in order to make this thing happen. It's important for you and for me and you, if you're like me, in being kind of determined in this way when you, you get an idea, I, when I'm in that kind of a mode, the importance of realizing there's something wrong with any plan that we will not even allow God to change it and then to roll with it if He does choose to change the plan. And if I'm so invested in a plan that I cannot do that, then it's a sure sign that in this area of my life, I'm not really interested in God's will in this plan. I'm only interested in uh, my own will. And in those circumstances, it's important to take a step back and then to take a deep breath in the middle of all of it Pray, put the situation back in God's hands, surrender it to Him, knowing that there is nothing better than God's will for our lives. Even when it seems like nothing can be better than the plan that I've come up with and the plan that I am pursuing. And again, there have been those times in my life where. I mean, God has just almost had to physically wrestle my plan out of my hands or out of my heart or out of my mind. And then when he does it, it's like it's the end of the world to me. I mean, nothing could it's just this is just the greatest loss in my life. Nothing could compare, not even God could come up with a better plan than the one that I had here. Why couldn't he see that? And then over time, God revealed his will for me again and again in that same area of my life, and his plan is always so much better. I could never have believed for a moment that anything could surpass my plan. The moment of disappointed, disappointment, uh, disappointment. i tell you, I stand before you this morning and I testify to the fact that every time, and it hasn't been easy, But every time God has said no to some plan of mine that is so emotionally, physically, mentally, uh, spiritually invested in, uh, it has always been to say no to it in order because he had something far better in mind. And I think that perhaps this truth and this short testimony of mine might be of some help to some of us this morning if you sit here just now deeply disappointed because the bottom fell out of some plan of yours in the last month or the last week or the last 48 hours. And it feels like the end of the world and in some relationship in your life or some business deal in your life or something to do with an investment or a purchase or some area of ministry. It's important to remember that that of the of the vast superiority of God's plans for our lives as opposed to our plans, even when we think they can't be better. And God declared it through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, famously. God said, "'For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways,' says the Lord. "'For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts.'" I'll tell you, it's a famous passage. It's one most of us are familiar with. But I never read it, not once, have ever read it, except that it did not correct something large or small uh, concerning uh, my perspective. In verse 4 of the chapter, there's mention made here of Paul's traveling uh, companions. And Paul is traveling with a group of seven men, in addition to Silas and and also Dr. Luke, ten of them all together, they're traveling with him, and they have come from the various churches that decided, yes, we want to be a part of this offering. That you are taking to uh, Jerusalem. And the Apostle Paul, wanting there to be transparency and for there to be accountability concerning uh, the gift and the size of the gift and so forth, he encouraged them to send a man or two along from each of the congregations with the offering. Don't hand it to me. They can hand it to the church in uh, Jerusalem when we get there and and nothing will be missing. It will all be delivered just in the same way that you want it. And so these young men and these men are traveling with Paul uh, with the you know an aspect of accountability involved, uh, I don't I don't uh, doubt at all that uh, there was also within those churches as you would might look at men whether younger or o- or older. Here is an opportunity to send a couple of uh, Christians from the church here to travel with the Apostle Paul uh, and to then to spend some time with him, learn from just traveling with him and listening to him and being with him, and they. these men along with Paul uh, for that purpose uh, as well. Uh, Just two of the names in uh, this group that are listed give us kind of a a glimpse at the broad diversity that's represented among them. You notice that there is the mention of Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. So they come from the church in the city of, of Thessalonica. And, uh, and, and so, they're two of the men that have been sent out with the offering uh, from that uh, church. Er, uh, uh, um, Aristarchus's name was a name that was associated with nobility. And uh, we get our English word aristocrat uh, from his Latin name. And so it was a name that you didn't give to a slave. It was a name that you didn't give to a blue-collar laborer. It was the kind of name that was reserved for someone in the ruling class, someone who had grown up in uh, the halls of wealth and of uh, power. Secundus, the guy that is traveling with him from Thessalonica, is an interesting name that he has. Uh, What does his name mean? Uh, Secundus. And Secundus is Latin for uh, second. And all of this gives rise to what I think is some very, very sanctified speculation that he was a slave. It's important to realize that the Roman Empire was made up of, in addition to everyone else, six million slaves. It was nothing for a household to own a slave or to own several uh, slaves. And uh, as was so often the case within the Roman Empire, when they would buy a slave or a number of slaves, they would have their given name. And the the slave owners would then dispossess them of their name and would instead give them a number. And the idea behind that, would it would be to kind of ease their conscience in terms of owning someone as a slave and treating them as a slave. When somebody has a name... It speaks of their humanity, it speaks of their individualness, it speaks of their, uh, their uniqueness. There's, some, uh, you know, there's something that speaks of their humanity through their name and that isn't spoken of when you give them a number. So it isn't unlikely that uh, he was one of a number of slaves in some household there in Thessalonica before he was released on this on this journey so if you own multiple slaves in a roman household and your first most important slave you would give him remove his given name and you would give him the name uh, primus Latin for one. This guy, this is slave number one. And the next slave, in terms of most importance, you would name him Secundus and so forth. It's interesting that Paul, again, he writes his letter to the Romans in the same season in his life. And at the end of the book of Romans, there is a man by the name of Tertius who uh, identifies himself as the secretary for Paul who wrote the book of Romans as Paul dictated it. Tertius' name in Latin means third. He was probably from the same kind of line of slaves uh, as, uh, as well. And here among Paul's team were men who came likely from very, very opposite uh, ends of things in terms of socioeconomically, in terms of of, uh, life experience, in terms of opportunity, and, and all of these kind of things in class, and yet now they're brought together and they are united and they are equal. And this is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the beauty of the kingdom of God because it operates completely differently from everything else in the world and the kingdom of god absolutely levels the playing field for everyone and it reminds us here that the kingdom of god it operates fairly and evenly no one is excluded from having influence or excluded from a position of importance within the kingdom of God or within a local church based upon their nationality or their race or their social status or their life experience or lack of it or the opportunities that they do or don't have based upon the wealth or the poverty of the family that they've been born into. I think it's very interesting to uh, realize as a Christian uh, that in the early church, as it's put together, you remember it is the Holy Spirit who calls people into the very offices within a local church. He calls the pastors. He calls the elders. He calls the deacons. He calls the deaconesses. He call, he's in charge. It all belongs to him. He's in charge of who he puts in these positions. And in the early church, it was nothing for God, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth concerning the gifts that God gives to every single Christian that he gives individually to everyone as he wills. So in the early church, you could go to a church, and the pastor or an elder within the church is a slave in the Roman Empire the other six days, and his master comes to the same church and is a greeter or an usher in a position below him in terms of authority within that church. Not in terms of significance, but in terms of authority. And that's just the way that the kingdom operated. Six days a week, he's out there in the field, and that boss is the boss. And when the boss says to jump, he asks, how high on the way up? But on the Sunday when they come to church, the role is completely reversed because that now is representing the kingdom of God. It is beautiful. It runs counterintuitive to everything that is going on so often. Uh, within uh, the world, and beautiful to see that the early church was rolling wonderfully with this, uh, this kind of, uh, of thing. And surely there would be an adjustment to that. It would be like people that are wealthy and powerful, they get invited to church, I ain't going to no church, you got a slave preaching. I mean, come on. And God doesn't move then you're not coming to church, and you can try and figure the Bible out on your own. And then I'll resist you for your pride, you know. So the Lord has His it's breaking through in people's lives to accept His choices. I love it, and, I, and, and uh, it, I think it speaks something even beautifully to us today. Now, this week that Paul spent in Troas... It uh, included a very, very eventful night, as we see in, there in verses 6 through uh, 12. So Paul and Silas and Luke, they arrive in Troas on Monday, and they the join the rest of the team uh, there at that particular point, and they remain there seven days, so uh, leaving uh, early morning the following Monday. And so the passage uh, focuses on the worship service that they enjoyed there in the, early, uh, in the early church and gives us some invaluable kind of insight into it. Uh, we do notice that they met on the first day of the week. Uh, they met on a Sunday Sunday and uh, the day of Jesus' resurrection. Sooner or later, every Christian is going to get uh, somebody who is a Sabbatarian uh, to come to you and say, what in the world are you doing worshiping on Sunday? Don't you know you're supposed to worship on Saturday, the Sabbath, and so forth, and trying to bring you into that uh, that whole uh, kind of thing and bring you back under the law? Uh, And so, Paul here, they met, the church there in Troas met on a Sunday. He instructed the church at Corinth uh, in chapter 16, verse 2 of the first epistle, On the first day of the week, let each of you come lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Paul warned the church at Colossae, saying, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing uh, over them in it speaking of Jesus and therefore let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or sabbaths and here's the reason why because they are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Like every other part of the law of Moses, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath law for us as Christians, and he fulfilled it in providing us with a perfect spiritual rest of which the physical Sabbath was only a type. And so here they meet on that Sunday. To me, meet any day of the week you want. Meet every day of the week you want. Just don't put people into bondage over Saturday or over Sunday. The worship service included fellowship. Here they are. They come together in this upper room up on the third story, and they've come together to partake of uh, the Lord's Supper and then also uh, to receive the teaching of God's Word. The service probably began in the evening. Uh, Sunday was not a day off in that culture. And so you would have to wait for people to get off of work. Certainly a slave couldn't come until the end of the day, and much of the early church was made up of slaves. And so people would get off work. They would go home, get something to eat, and then they would make their way to the evening service there uh, in, in Troas. Uh, Paul's preaching was long. Uh, he did preach till midnight. So how many hours? Let's see, we have 13 hours to... Okay, so... So he preaches for a long time, and he does so for a purpose. He knows he is going to leave these uh, Christians the next morning, and he will never see them again. This is the last time he's coming to Troas. He will never see these people again, and he knew the possibility of it, and so he wants to make the most of this final time to encourage them, build them up in the things of the Lord. And he has that sense of urgency uh, time-wise. Now, don't view this as just like a pure homily that he was involved in. Uh, Two Greek words are used to describe Paul's preaching. One of them is a word that would describe what I'm doing right now for, you know, this 45 minutes, and that is to deliver a sermon. He did that. A part of the night was that, But then there is another Greek word that is used uh, that we get our English word dialogue from. And so there's a dialogue. There's a back and forth. There's a question and answer that's happening over the course of those five or six hours uh, that, you know, kind of all, uh, you know, rolled one on top of the other. Other than Paul's, uh, Paul's preaching that night, uh, the next single kind of greatest event that occurred there was the fall of Eutychus. We're told that he was a young man, and the Greek word that describes him as a young man puts him somewhere between 8 and 14 years old. So picture one of our young men in our uh, junior high uh, ministry. So here he is. He's in this third-story room that is probably a private residence or a hall that they've rented for, uh, for the purpose. And Paul has now been teaching for several hours. Luke is very careful, he's a doctor, to let us know that the air quality in the room isn't that great. They've got a lot of candles and a lot of oil lamps lit, and so you have the fumes of all of that. You have a place that is so packed with bodies that Eutychus is sitting uh, in in, in a windowsill And you have these flames that are using up, in addition to the people, using up whatever oxygen is there within the room. And everything is playing its part in inducing this drowsiness within Eutychus. So he sits there in a window and three stories up, probably in search of fresh air. This is the freshest air in the whole room. There's no glass in the window in those days, probably some lattice or probably just nothing. And he's trying to draw in some fresh air to help him stay awake. And everything about the passage, I mean, you read it there verse 9, sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. You can almost feel it. All of us have experienced this in life. He's fighting. He's fighting. He's fighting. Must not go to sleep. Must not go to sleep. The Apostle Paul is preaching. My mom and dad said this was I must not fall asleep. I must not fall asleep. And you pinch here and then you pinch some other spot that causes pain. You clench all the muscles in your body, you know, to heighten, you know, and get an adrenaline rush to have that happen again. And that buys me another three minutes. All these things that he's he's trying to do, you know, and it's just gradually coming over him. He's losing uh, the battle, and we all know the feeling. I mean, the spirit is willing, but the body, the flesh, is weak. And then there is that moment when you're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting, and you know you've left the fight and you are now asleep you enter into the realm of sleep. Again, we all know that feeling. Well, the last place you want to be when that happens is sitting in a windowsill and a third story high above a very, very hard street down below. And you can just picture it. I mean, you go to sleep, what happens? <laughs> you, know, you don't want anybody taking a picture, right? So everything just goes limp and loose. And your body's just going to fall wherever it's going to fall. And so, second he goes to sleep all of that happens within uh his his body and uh and I don't know if he felt the sensation of falling as he was falling, but he goes out the window. I don't know how many of you a portion of my childhood that I slept on the upper bed of a bunk bed. And I went out of that bed in the middle of the night to the floor multiple times. It's a weird feeling because sometimes you actually feel it's like a thousand and you hit, okay? And, and yet somehow you've got enough time to feel like you're falling, uh, but not wake up. So here he is, and, and it's, all, it's bad enough to hit a hardwood floor, uh, you know, from six feet up off of the ground, to go three stories down to kind of the, the patio uh, down below. Suddenly uh, he hits and it killed him and he was taken up uh, dead and dead is the diagnosis of Doctor Luke and Paul interrupts his sermon he immediately runs over to uh, Eutychus falls on top of him embraces him and the imagery is so such a parallel of Elisha in the Old Testament uh, uh, being involved in the resurrection. Of the son of the Shunammite woman, a Shunammite woman, where he died, and God used Elisha to bring him back to. Uh, from the dead, and here is Paul, maybe consciously or unconsciously, kind of in that uh, same mode. But while he is laying upon Eutychus there with a desire for him uh, to be resurrected, Paul then sensed a miracle of the Holy Spirit, a miracle of resurrection occurring in the boy long before anybody else was aware of it, and he then announced it uh, to them. And so, obviously, a great relief to the whole meeting. Uh, That can really kill a meeting. You know, I mean, hurt a meeting. And uh, now, as I read this kind of thing, I'm very thankful for this demonstration of resurrection power in in, and through the Apostle Paul here. Uh, But I can't help at my age in reading this passage, uh, thinking, you know, that's not a bad way to go. All things considering, you know. I mean, here you are in church. And you're listening to the Apostle Paul teach the Bible, and you nod off for a moment, and the next thing you know, you're in heaven. You're right, you're right there. You go from church straight into heaven. I mean, the only downside about this whole thing, and I understand it, is that the boy was so young, and, uh, but if he'd been 80 years old, and uh, he might have gotten mad at Paul raising him up uh, from the dead. <laughs> Because man, that's about how you want to die, other than the rapture taking you, you know. And now you've raised me from this perfect death. I was in heaven to what to now die. What is going to be a comparatively much harder uh, death? Thank you very much, Paul, and uh, the assembly. Of course, they're very excited about it. And at that midnight hour, in these events, they partook of the Lord's supper and then had a communal meal. And Paul spent the rest of the night with them, just simply fellowshipping and talking about the things of the Lord. And the only thing that ended up breaking up the meeting was the sun began to shine on that Monday morning, and Paul had to catch that boat out of Troas uh, to continue his uh, journey. Neither Paul nor the boy are condemned in any way in the passage. Paul's not condemned for the long sermon, and the boy is not condemned for losing his fight against sleepiness in church. We all know uh, what that uh, feels like. Uh, My favorite uh, line about people falling asleep in church uh, is when somebody said that if you took all of the people in the whole world that fall asleep in church and you laid them from end to end, they'd be much more comfortable. Uh, that's... <laughs> so there's no condemnation at all in the passage. What it had to do, and maybe the reason that it's in the passage is here and included in the narrative, is God knowing how hard ministry was for Paul at this season in his life Uh, took this opportunity to express resurrection power through Paul into the boy, not only for the sake of the boy and for the church, but for the sake of the Apostle Paul as an encouragement between him and God in terms of his faithfulness to what God had called him to do. Now, I also just want to thank the Lord so much in your presence for uh, and I would never use this passage as a weapon against you. Uh, I'm very grateful for your attentiveness uh, to the, as a congregation and the grace you show me as a teacher all of the time. Now, finally, in just a moment here, I want to close with one uh, final kind of devotional thought here. I think that the passage from one end to the other speaks to us of the importance of fellowship and not only what it means to us, but what it means to other people. Uh, There is fellowship in this passage from one end to the other. At the beginning of the passage in verse 1, it begins with Paul embracing uh, these Ephesian Christians before he leaves them. It could have been a handshake. He could have waved at them, you know, from a bus leaving or something. But He calls the church together, and he wants to personally embrace the church before he goes. We're told about the individuals that he is traveling uh, with and the fellowship that he receives there. We're told that Paul at the end of the chapter here, or the end of this particular section, that when he finishes his sermon, and here is Eutychus raised from the dead. Paul could have said, I'm going to just go back to my room at the hotel and crash. I got a ship to to catch in the morning. He doesn't do that. He so craved the fellowship with the saints, sure for their edification, but for himself as well, that he spent the entire rest of the night eating with them, talking with them, and only dawn forced him to bring an end to that, to continue on with his journey. You know, life wasn't easy for the Apostle Paul at this time, enormous responsibility on his shoulders. He is dealing with chronic health problems in his life. The church at Corinth has broken his heart. It's still a great weight upon his heart. Persecution is everywhere. He can't even get on a boat now without potentially being stabbed and thrown overboard. And there's just a lot happening for Paul. And so, yes, that uh, Paul did what he did in, in, in all of these cities and including in Troas in order to strengthen and to uh, encourage the saints everywhere he went. But you can't read this without getting a sense for what Christian fellowship meant to him in his life and his ministry as well, the strength and the encouragement that it provided to him. And it is Dr. Luke by the Holy Spirit who wanted to let us know, again, that before leaving Ephesus, it was Paul's idea to call those disciples and to hug them. Dr. Luke wanted us to know that in Troas, Paul didn't just leave again after the sermon, but he stayed there all night. It is widely held that the Apostle Paul was at some time in his life uh, previously married because and uh, and because before he became a christian he was a member of the jewish sanhedrin and that was a, the highest jewish governing body in israel at the time and it was required to be married to be a part of the jewish San, sanhedrin And some speculate that his wife left him when he became a Christian. We don't know if that's true, but it is a possibility. But if so, then the Apostle Paul, upon becoming a Christian, he lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his former occupation, his prestige, all of his plans and goals that he had for his life, his former religious community, and the church for the rest of his life is the only family that he had. And you see it all the way through uh, the Bible. And I think that there are many, many people who come to church today in that same condition, where for a wide variety of reasons, the church is the only family they have, the only place of true fellowship and deep relationship within their lives. And I think that it's important to realize that as uh, Christians, that, that what this kind of a meeting and meetings like this mean to people And what your presence means in a room like this. Yes, God's presence is supreme and over all, but there is this, this power of presence, not in the way that sometimes the world defines it, but there is a power. Of being in a room like this, being a part of a church family like this, having a place to belong to, uh, uh, like uh, like this, and the encouragement that your life brings to everyone else in the church though any one of us in this room may only have the margins to maybe know three people, five people, ten people, most fifteen people within the church, and have no uh, ability to have a relationship with the other hundreds that attend the church. And yet, though you may or never come into contact With those other hundreds within the church, the fact that you are here every week, the fact that you make up this family, it does something good within all of our hearts because your presence, the uniqueness, of the Holy Spirit's presence in you and His expression through you is what makes this church what it is uniquely, gives it uniquely the personality that it has. And I think that so often we can attend a church, especially if it's a little bit larger, and to think nobody notices me, nobody knows what's going on, you know, and what influence am I having in anybody's life? I simply come and do a few things maybe here and there on all of that. Who's watching me? Who cares about me? And not to realize, because we all do it with other people where we come in, and here we are at the end of our rope, or in a difficult place like like Paul is in, and we come in, and I may not know you personally, but I know you sit there, and your little group sits right there, and I sit down, and I say, they're here. Thank you, Lord. It does something good in me. And it is your love for the Lord, your love for fellowship, your worship, of the Lord, your concern for the health of the church and to be a part of a local church that does things in my life and other people's lives that we sometimes never, ever realize. Where someone comes into church and they're running on empty in terms of faith, the great crisis, Paul, three, four, five major things exploding all at once within his life and to come in and say, I have nothing to offer anyone else today. My faith is, is not in jeopardy, but my faith is being heavily tapped at the moment. I need to come into this place, and I need to be able to tap into the faith of others while I'm walking through this trial, and then to sit behind you or in front of you and hear you worship, and to see you walk with the Lord, and to see an open Bible on your lap and what it does uh, to us, and the beauty of of all of that, and so often all of it communicated without offering a single word to anybody else, but powerfully communicated in meetings like this. I say, not in a way to pander in any way, it is not in me uh, to do that, but to say thank you for what your presence, if you did nothing else, what your presence alone brings to this church and helping it be a blessing to me and everyone else that is a part of this church as well as we navigate the difficulty of this life and this world that we find ourselves in. Let's stand together and we'll pray and dismiss. Think about the value of Christian fellowship. I remember a number of years ago being meeting with a missionary in the Ukraine. And he said, do you have anybody that could go out to the Ukraine and start some churches? He said, I have 10 churches in the Ukraine. I have ten, there are 10 cities in the Ukraine right now that number over a million people. And there is not one single uh, evangelical presence within those cities for that Christian to go to church. I mean, we're so rich in Modesto in that way, and, uh, but it's so wonderful not to have to lose it uh, to appreciate it. Lord, we thank you so much for fellowship. We thank you for all of this insight into the Apostle Paul's life, and somehow it helps us to know when things aren't going easy for us and our plans are being dashed and it looks like the end of our world as they are to see that he went through the same things as well and how you carried him through it and that you will carry us through it as well. Thank you, Lord, for the glimpse at what Christian fellowship meant to Paul, not just to go and teach and to give, but to receive, Lord, and the great need that he had for what the body of Christ alone can bring, Lord, in the power of your Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for how we experience that same thing week in and week out in this church. Thank you, Lord, for the way you have put it together and the blessing that you have made us one to another. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.